huge thank you to all the listeners who tuned into part one. I'm back with part two. Uh, sorry for the delay. Always dealing with some technical difficulties when you're running your own podcast without a real producer. So without further ado, here is PD Webb with part two. So the question for me is what makes the WCAC different? So there is, there's a bunch of different ways to go with this. And I don't want to give the typical car salesman answer of the environment, the atmosphere, the culture, like, because if you're watching high school film, like we talked, we were talking about this last night, like watching CBC play Vasham with Jason Tatum courtside and like that gym packed. That's awesome. Like that's no different than the WCAC watching dude. Oh, Georgia watching Grayson and McEachern go at it in a packed gym. That's a great environment. That, that stuff is available around the country. What's not available around the country is just the pure talent for the sake that no one leaves the area. And that's my favorite part. No one leaves. Okay, you get an occasional guy going to Oak Hill, but it's nothing compared to what we're seeing in like New York City where everyone is going up to Nepsack or North Carolina where like their five best long-term prospects are all going to IMG, Brewster, or Montvert. Like everyone is leaving the state for better bump and better exposure. And you just don't need to get that here. It, I don't know if it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing where like the, the exposure is great so the talent can stay. I don't really know. But what I do know is that these kids grow up playing against each other from when they're in 8U to then all the way their senior year of high school. And like the rivalries, the encore rivalries and the off-court friendships, like that, it might sound corny, but like that is what I genuinely believe separates WCAC, that these kids – don't have to leave. They stay here. They go to the same high school for four years for the most part, and they just battle for 10 years straight. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not from the area. I grew up in California and now I live on the East coast. And uh, I looked at the website and there is only three schools on here that I can't think of like a good ass player who went there. Yeah. And um, it's something that I've always wondered about. Cause like I consider the DMV a state like for basketball purposes. Um, and to me, it's like one of the three or one of the five, if not one of the three best in the country. And there's something special in the water in terms of how you keep kids and how you keep, you know, these programs good and how you keep these schools funded, which is a thing that's happening up and down the East Coast is that, you know, these uh, private schools just don't have the, the bread to keep it going. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you, you guys don't have any small pieces of advice for the rest of the country on how to keep the, uh, the local <laughs> grind good. Listen, I mean, it's just, it's just something like, and you said it's historical and like it literally like you have in the not in like the not or i don't even know 90s 80s 70s but like when carol was dominating and then you but like dematha which we'll get to has always been like the long term like they've always ran the conference but then you have like o'connell has their time in the in the late 2010s and then now you kind of have this big three of paul the six gonzaga and dematha which i've been super lucky to get an opportunity to see how the coaches interact with them in open gyms and just see how the players develop and talk to assistant coaches. And it's just something special. Like I've everyone I've talked to and they say, how do you get into this? I just, I'm lucky enough that I've had these three schools, especially in my backyard for from eighth grade on. And they are always top 50 in the country with top 100 recruits, power five players. And it's just, everyone stays. And that's really, really, that's the part that is just, I think as high school basketball continue and the big schools continue to get bigger, that's something that like is pretty unique to the DMV. Yeah. Just, I mean, from an outsider, it's just, it's special because, uh, you know, there might be weeks where, you know, the public school 
doesn't get to play anybody good. And uh, when you have to play, you know, a top 10 team in the country two, three times in a year, like you just required that, that creates a different environment because it's like, well, we have to go through an insane schedule. Um, so as an outsider, I'm just, uh, I'm jealous of the level of hoop that you all got down there. Yeah, def- it's definitely something special for sure. So and then you wanted to talk to me about the Damatha program in general, and I'm curious where you want to go with this. Yeah. So, I mean, I was always told the hardest job in basketball is being the guy following the guy. Yep. And uh, I don't know what you call Morgan Wooden other than the guy. Um, and uh, like Jones took over in 2002, he's got 500 wins since. Uh, that's not just following the guy, that's being a guy yourself. So, I mean, how does a program have a legendary coach and then have another legendary coach come after it? And, you know, how do you, how do you have a program get that lucky? So, I mean, first off, we're talking about Damatha, but I do want to give like a quick shout out to the guys at Gonzaga and Paul the Six because they've been equally as good to me as the Damatha staff and the Damatha players. And we, I have special bonds with all of them. Um, it's no secret that Damatha has a longevity that's unique to them. And that's why we're talking about them. But I don't want to make this seem, you know, the DMV people get a little hot at some things. I don't want this to make it seem like this is Damatha's count or did Damatha's area and everyone else is chopped liver but this is yeah. a, this is my question i put it on the on the, <laughs> on the area i i don't want smoke with random people in the dmv if you have <laughs> if you would like to educate me on the history of, of uh, gonzaga and paul the six coaches i will gladly love to hear that this is just the one as an outsider that i know and so i'm asking the so question. if in, in case you missed this in the beginning at above the break three on twitter mentions are open anyways so Damatha, basically ever since i've been able to observe Damatha. it's just you hear this stuff like carry yourself different and it's cliche but when you, it, it is real when you see it at Damatha, and you get someone like mike jones who has been under morgan wooten and knows and played under him and knows how great his legacy was so look and this is pure speculation i've never talked to mike about his like intuitions and how he modeled i mean we've had little conversations about what he took away from someone as great as morgan wooten but i just think that's there for him and he's striving to be as great as he was because there's no other option for him like to be growing up in damatha and playing under the guy like morgan wooten and then you talked about it following him there's nothing harder and people in the area know that mike jones worked his ass off to get the job in the first place and not only has he kept the job, he's made something special there in his own right. And that's nothing short of admirable. And I think the way he does that is, I don't even want to say culture because it's just the ultimate buzzword that gets tossed around for everyone who strings together a season above 500. But the DeMatha way is just different, man. Like it really, really is. And it's not an eliteness, like we're better than you and you're below us, but it's we're DeMatha and we have a history and we have something to our name that we're required to live up to. And just watching that transpire every single year and watching those guys work and not that they work X amount harder than everyone else, but just knowing the pressure that to coach, to be associated, to play for that program, the pressure to be a part of it. And then the rewards when you perform, it's just something special. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, it's, as an outsider um it's something that you know there are programs that rise and fall and like the 
to have something so stable, you know, I, I figured you were going to say something that they just know where all the bodies are buried or something like that. Like I thought <laughs> there's going to be some grand secret I was unaware of. Um, so can we, can we pivot to another uh, topic that's near and dear to my heart? Yep. Talk to me. Uh, can we talk about players that offers? Um, this is something that I will continue to uh, retweet anytime that it comes across my timeline. Anytime somebody has a case for a kid who is not getting enough love, especially in the times that we're in right now. So tell me about a guy in 2021 who hasn't gotten that, that phone call and tell me why I, as a pretend college coach, should offer that man right now. So I have my guy in mind. I am doing last second because I don't want to get grilled by anyone. I'm checking to see if this player has any offers. I don't believe he does. So, okay. Verbal commits is telling me he has an offer from IUPUI. I don't know if that's still the case with the coaching staff. I had heard it got pulled. I don't know. Let's just say he has one offer to be safe. You know I'm, what? I will, I will count it. We're good with it. <laughs> so that player, speaking of DeMatha, is Elijah Hawkins. And there's about a million reasons, just looking at the paper, why you would not want to take a shot on this kid as a D1 school. He's about 5'8", 150, 160 maybe. And those dudes just don't really succeed at the next level there it's just really really hard but the case for elijah hawkins is as simple as turn on the film and on the film you see one of the grittiest motherfuckers that i've ever seen play basketball and the clip went viral about him giving devin askew about as hard of a time as you're gonna see a kentucky commit get handling the ball and i'm not talking like one possession there was like a one minute i'm sure you saw it like a one minute clip of him just hounding Devin Askew for the entire game, giving him a hard time. And it's just not, it's not just on the defensive side of the ball where he's clearly like a complete pest on the offensive side. He's a really, really impressive pull-up shooter. And that's something I really love about his game. He's super look as a five, eight point guard. There's, who's not a crazy athlete. There's only so many ways you can finish around centers and he gets it done with some floaters. But at the end of the day, his game as a pull-up shooter, both from, like the three-point line end of the mid-range area is pretty deadly. And he put it on display on the biggest stage in the DMV on the WCAC championship, came out gunning. And talk about players that are never scared. That dude's not going to back down from anyone. And you, we can say how corny and cliche hard over height is, but listen, it's real for Elijah Hawkins. And just take a shot on someone who I can promise you is not going to make you regret it. I mean, it's only corny until they start winning games for the other team. And then, and then that you start to feel a little different way about that. Um, yeah, I have seen the I have seen the ask you clip. I believe that was one of my first introductions to 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 this young man. Um, as always, if you if you have somebody you know that comes to you, or if your listeners have somebody, uh, shoot me an at. Uh, would love to signal boost anybody because it's it's hard right now, and uh, everybody's looking for you know uh, the person that can can help change their life. Yep. And so, talk to me about one of your guys. I was gonna do. Uh, I was gonna do uh, guys who were gonna blow up, blow up this summer. Okay. Um, I have, okay. So cool. Give me your guys, and then I have one person for that category as well. Okay. I'm gonna start with Caleb Washington. Um, I. It's tough um, to sort of judge the 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 quarantine ball that's happening right now down in Atlanta. Um, I watched Caleb Washington, who's from um, Pebblebrook down in Georgia, plays with Game Elite. Uh, one of those guys that's like six seven, and things don't always click. 
But when they do, you're like, oh, there's a pro. Mm-hmm. And when I saw him during the season, I was like, okay, like I can see this. He, you know, he has some, some high major offers, but it's not, he's like a top hundred, like, like low, low one hundreds type kid. And, uh, first time that I saw him last weekend, I want to say, um, with game elite, I was like, oh, he's been, he's been really working. Mm-hmm. The shake is different. The jumper looks a lot smoother. Um, he's taking him off the bounce. Um, he's somebody that, uh, I think that if we were having live periods would be like fighting for five-star status because he's got, I mean, long arms, uh, great athleticism uh, in the open court. Uh, Somebody that puts pressure on the rim. The next step for him is going to be attacking out with the left Um, around the cup. He can get a little righty dominant. Um, Somebody that is going to move up boards the minute that we can have a real live period. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm interested. I'm keeping tabs. So do you want, do you want me to go with my guy who's going to blow up? Yep. Okay. So I have been literally preaching that this kid is going to blow up since I mean, I, since I've been watching him, he plays high school ball literally five minutes away from me. And that's Eric Reynolds of Bulls with Team Takeover. And you, right now, you have a 6 2, 6 3 combo guard, right? That archetype doesn't seriously jump off the page. But when you turn on the film, like the shot creation and the shot making ability that this kid showed as a junior in high school is pretty incredible um every everything in the bag off the bounce sidesteps step backs were like crossover step backs he has everything in the bag and the game just comes so smooth to him like you just you just see it with some of these guys that it's just like oh i can tell he's taken that shot 200 times in the lab like you it just dudes are gym rats and for them for like combo guards especially with shake and rhythm you can tell when they've really been putting putting on putting i can't talk right now putting work in the lab on a certain move and he is pretty much the epitome of that he pretty i think he had a really good season with bullis but in an area where the wcac is kind of end-all be-all in terms of coverage playing in the iac got lackluster coverage didn't get as much exposure as i would have hoped for the season that he had but it, I took solace in the fact that to text takeover coaches every time about a game, like, dude, you have no idea. This kid is cooking right now. And then it kind of hurts to see him not be able to have the platform. And obviously, Team Takeover, probably one of the most respected UIBL teams, like, he would have definitely gotten the buzz he deserves. 247 is pretty high on him. He's 71 in their rankings, despite being 160 in the composite. But this is just a kid who you have heard for the past two years. Oh, yeah, he's just going to go kill in the A-10. Like, he'll be a great four-year player. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I th- I've i always thought this kid could be a high, like a high major power five kid. And now the offers are starting to roll in even without the UIBL period. So I'm hoping that without this live period, people are tuned into his high school games next year because he's going to kill for another season. Jumped off the page with the shot creation. When, when I saw him, uh, when we were doing prep for this, like I saw it, I was like, Oh no, like I think it took me three clips. I was like, Oh, that he's getting all that off. Yep. Like sometimes you see people do moves and you're like, yeah, I, see, I, I can see how you get this off in a high school setting. He did one of those. I was like, that's a high major move. We're not, there's no questions here that the, the shot creation is uh, as real as you could find it. Um, my last one, uh, is, uh, KJ Adams, uh, who plays for team Griffin and, uh, plays for Westlake in Austin. Um, I don't mean to bring this up, but in 16U uh, EYBL championship, he went crazy. Yep, he did. 23, 5, and 5. Um, I think people see him as a center. 
because he's, you know, already built like a grown man, but I think he's a, a four long-term. Um, to me, he's a stone cold five-star. Um, he's in the seventies for reasons I do not understand. Uh, <laughs> the jumper is improving year over year. Um, a guy who with one step can put his head at the rim. Um, shot blocker. I really like how he slides his feet. Um, the way that he gathers into his perimeter shots is really encouraging to me and leads me to believe there's a whole bunch of, uh, of improvement. This is, this is a guy who moves kind of like a big right now. So his moves will come to a two stop and then to straight up and that fluidity over the next, you know, year and a half, two years is going to separate him, whether he's, you know, a, a high major five-star or an NBA guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, um, this is somebody I would bet on. Um, I just wish that, you know, the UIBL didn't make people or didn't let people play zone. I think KJ is awesome. I just wanted to see him play man. I'm, I'm so sorry if, uh, if you're a team Griffin and, and, and I might have accidentally hurt your feelings by saying that y'all were playing zone. I just want to see him play man. It's really hard to evaluate guys in the zone. I feel the same way about Syracuse, I feel the same way about Washington. I just want people to play man. I can definitely co-sign that. And to the TTO people that are listening to this, I'm sorry. My man had to bring back some pretty, let's say heartbreaking memories from last summer, but, and this is, let me back, (laughs) let me back in the DMV. (laughs) So before we do end this, I want to, I want to talk some 2020 draft because we've talked a lot of philosophy. We talked a lot about fit and the 2020 draft. I've been thinking a lot about it. It's pretty much the epitome of fit, like team context and role and development and progression is pretty much going to determine everything for most of these prospects. And so I just had a couple of names of evaluations that I'm personally struggling with and I want to run them by you. So the first one I want to talk about is Josh Green. Um, okay. Go ahead. Um, I mean, with Josh, it's, it's how much you believe you can develop the ball skills. Um, I buy the shooting to a degree that other people don't just because it goes in. Um, and the mechanics aren't great. To, you know, the legs collapse. Um, at times, you can release it a little bit later than you would like, and the confidence comes and goes. Um, there's games where he shoots six or seven threes, and there's games where he shoots two threes and just like getting you know full record scratch. Um, I think that if you get into an environment where you say, "Hey, if you don't shoot this three, you're not playing," like that's going to be a role that's easier for him. Um, just a ludicrous athlete especially when you can throw them on guards. Like you, you could buy a lot of time on, your, on an opposing point guard just by throwing Josh Green on there and he's going to be tired. Yep. Um, I don't think he's going to be able to really dribble at an NBA level. Um, the left-hand layup thing scares the hell out of me. It's bad. Um, but, I mean, this is a guy who, to me, is destined to play years in the pros. So with Josh Green, and we talked about, like, if you're approaching the big board and this is something I'm thinking about, like, outside the lottery, who's going to stick and who is going to have a productive long career. And I've lowered on Josh Green. A lot of it is just a function of like, I genuinely can't figure him out. And he's definitely the hardest evaluation for me in the class. And the part that I'm so rattled and shook by is just the disparity in confidence from a game to game basis. And that goes with the shooting and that goes with the ball skills and the creation. Like there are games where this dude just disappears and I legitimately forget he's on the court for like extended periods of time. And then there's games where he's all over the place and he's rip driving and he's throwing hook pass. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's an NBA wing. Like I see it, but the, dis- and the jump shot, I wrote about you asked me this question in my mailbag and he was one of the guys that I'm not buying the shooting for despite the fact that the numbers are actually good. Like his catch and shoot spot ups are good. Yeah. 36%. 
Oh yeah, the the like the percentiles are good, and that's not evidence against him. The evidence against him that I just can't quite get there with is the amount of times I've seen him pass up like an open catch and shoot jumper look, and like that kind of scares me. And it's just we can talk about wiring and reading into things based on film. Just and look, I could be completely wrong on Josh Green, and I wouldn't be shocked. I could be completely right, and I'd be like, eh, okay, I I kind of got one there. He's just someone like certainly that like if I was a GM, he'd keep me up at night because I can't quite get a grasp because of like the disparity from a game to game basis in his engagement and his confidence. It's hard. And I've struggled with it for four years now. Mm-hmm. I struggled with it when he was at Hillcrest just being like, this kid should be awesome. What's like, he's, he has moments where he is like, uh, you, you can look at him and be like, that should be a top 10 player in this draft. Oh, a hundred percent. And then you'll have games where you're like, that's not a top 100 player in this draft. Like, if you could give him just, like, unlimited confidence, I would love that guy. And I think that the later that he gets drafted, the more of a guarantee that he'll get put into a smaller role. And I think that's the way that you raise somebody's confidence is you put them in something that they're competent in and you slowly pick away at the other stuff. Yeah. And, look, I don't want to – we can talk about the positives. Like, if we're talking perimeter defenders with the combination of strength – and like quickness in terms of like hip fluidity, that dude, like watching him, I posted the clip, he trailed, I think it was Jaden McDaniel. So obviously take it with a grain of salt because of the burst, but like he, Jaden had to step on him because he got clipped by a pretty good screen. He completely recovers. Jaden rips middle. Josh Green completely flips his hips, beats him to the spot and forces a charge. And again, this is, this is Jaden McDaniels. Like this isn't Kyra Lewis. I'm not, we're not going to get carried away here. But it's just the idea, like, that is going to cause, like, that is translatable in my opinion. Like, he is going to do that stuff from day one in the NBA. It's just the offensive side of the ball, I just can't quite get a grasp on it. I'm sure that there are a lot of other people who feel the exact same way. I know that I'm one of them. I'm just, I, I deep down, there's just a part of me that's like, he's going to be the most, like, the safest bet to hit his median outcome. I just, oh, and, I, yeah, in, in a call. In a class that completely lacks any wings that I have faith in, like sticking and being productive in the NBA. Like, if you're a team, and this is why big boards, like for this year and especially for this next guy that I want to bring up, like Josh Green, if you're a team looking for a wing and you're at 18 or 17, like go ahead, take Josh Green. Like, I don't care that he's in the low 20s on my big board. Like, the disparity between him and the wings later in the class, like it's night and day in my opinion. Um, so for someone like that, like I, I don't have a problem with the range that he's going to get drafted and it doesn't look like he's going to be this lottery guy. I just hope that the team that drafts him re- recognizes the issues. Like let's just say, even if the mechanics don't change, like is it possible that with confidence, he's still a fine three point shooter? Like, that's okay with me. It's just, I hope that the team that drafts him finds the correct issues with his approach to the game on a game to game basis and fixes them. Yeah. I, I, that's kind of the point that it comes to is you kind of get to a cliff with Josh Green. It's like, so you're going to do this or no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then one last guy I want to bring up and then I'll give you the floor for anyone you want to talk about and ask me RJ Hampton. Um, we're taught we've spent the past hour and a half talking about advantage creation and bending a defense. And there's probably no one who does that better in the class. Mate, eh, there's 
let's just say RJ Hampton is top five or top three in the class in picking apart, like penetrating a defense and shifting them. Like watching, he is bursty as hell and watching him just like get into the lane and then look, obviously decision-making is not all there and the passing plethora, it came along throughout the year, but it's still not as great as I'd like it to be. Like, I don't think he's a primary by any means. Um, but watching that dude penetrate at 18 years old or literally just coming straight from high school and going into the NBL, just how the burst still pops off the, off the film, like that's something that I feel like I should pay more attention to. Yeah, I don't think anybody had more of an um, archetype correction in the past 12 months than RJ Hampton, who, you know, before he went to the NBL, was seen as a straight primary, as a ball in hand, you know, combo guard, with size, who is going to, you know, bend a defense and expected to hold a huge usage, you know, creation. And that lasted like a month in NBL. And then he was like, okay, so I'm an off ball wing. Um, I think that you have to be extremely patient with a guy like that who grew up with the ball in their hands, who, you know, has a, a bag that's built towards that. Like every workout session he's probably done since he was 12 was towards being a, a ball in hand creator. And so he was learning a new role in a new country being a professional for the first time, that's a, about as rough as you can ask for for a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, again, another guy that I would love to have, but at a much lower price. Um, I think that like the shooting is concerning the defenses as well. Um, but for, if you are a person who wants to bet on tools and bet on things that you are either can't teach or impossible or really, really hard to teach, watching that dude run mm-hmm. and just like the ability for him to go to like a truly high gear out of almost nothing is special. So with RJ and the shooting, I'm not really that high on the shooting, especially the catch and shoot. I think he's certainly one of those guys that's just much more comfortable shooting off the bounce. And that can definitely be attributed to him growing up with the ball in his hands and training with the ball in his hands. All his reps that we've talked about are all ball in hand coming off a screen, shifting them with a combo and then pulling up. And what I do like is, if he can develop or become comfortable in this like off ball role, him attacking like a closeout with his bag of dribble moves that he definitely has and the burst, like that's kind of scary to me. It's just a matter of, is he going to generate those closeouts? Because I don't know how much I can buy the catch and shoot. Yeah. I don't really buy it. Um, He's somebody that I would like to see have another year i almost never say this but like he's somebody that like the adjustment is just so strong so strong um so it's it's difficult to take a ton of like almost any value from what he did other than like the dude showed up in a foreign country responded to adversity and got better as the season went along and like that's the thing that you can look forward to most is that like both him and Melo got better as the season went along at, at their the things that they struggled with um I'd probably start looking at him in the second round, to be honest. Um, I have, you know, legit concerns about shooting. If he were like a little bit bigger, a little bit longer, we could talk higher. But if you are a person who really buys tools, I can understand having him, you know, the late teens, early 20s. Yeah, no, I get that for sure. Um, I'm done with my guys. Anyone you want to hit me with, the floor is yours. Yeah, I would like to ask some questions about Trey Jones. Mm, I like it. So I take it, since you're asking me this, knowing my stance, I take it you are not a huge Trey Jones believer. I mean, how good of a shooter do you think he is? Okay, so I think this is, I mean, look, this is ultimately what, the, what it comes down to because I don't think 
look, I th- as a bench unit point guard, yes, I see it. Like, I think he can run that offense. I there some people question his decision making this year, and while it wasn't great, like with increased usage, I, I think he was still a pretty damn good passer. With Trey, I do buy the catch and shoot like to a pretty good extent that I believe he can play off the ball with other people. Um, the mechanics still aren't great, but what I really, really like this year is just like that dude was scared shitless to shoot a jump shot last year and he was gunning them with no hesitation this year. And just that increase in volume and confidence that's like really, really visible without having access to any of his training sessions or knowing what he's talking to with his trainers. Like just me as the only access I have to Trey Jones is through game film, which I can't hear any audio to on the court. And like, I can see the the confident strides that he's made in his jumper. That's something I'm willing to get behind. Yes. The mechanics aren't perfect still. Like the percentages still weren't great, but that jump from one year from his freshman to sophomore year and people cite small sample size and, what's his regressing to the mean eventually going to look like. But for me and Trey Jones, like the defense is really, really good. Like the, the defense is still really, really good. And we can talk about guard defenders, not really having that much of impact. I think he could be that. I think there's a solid pathway for him to be that good as like a disruptor. So both guard spots. Um, I don't think that's crazy. So if we're talking, he can taking the defense into account, the decision-making and passing and I like the, like, and this has been something of Trey that I always like going back to his high school days is this little pull-up game. Like, I think he has a really patent pull-up game that he's comfortable with. I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, so this could be completely anecdotal. But, like, I do like him as a pull-up shooter, and I buy the catch-and-shoot to a good enough extent where I believe he's scalable to play with other guards. Okay. I mean, like, I buy that. It's just, it, to me, like, all of that is true. But if he doesn't shoot 37% from three, I don't know how much it matters. And that's fair. Like, I'm me buying Trey as a guy who's, like, going to stick in the league and should get drafted in the 20s somewhere. Like, I'm okay with, like, saying, look, it's all going to depend on the shot because at the end of the day, like, I, if we, I don't think he's this, like, crazy advantage creation creator like he's not super bursty i love like how smart he is i think he's really really smart as a ball handler and knows how to get guys on his hips he knows how to play angles well i think he's still a really really good passer but i think that probably takes a notch takes a step down at the nba level but i i can't disagree with that which is why like he's not he's not a lottery guy to me but i just do think he's one of the more underrated options as we get later on in the draft yeah, and I think that part of my being anti, like my anti big board stance is that like if you have a guy you believe in, you should take him as high as you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that if if Trey is you know 21st for you, and there's a spot for him at 17, like swing, because at the end of the day, most of the picks in the NBA draft don't super matter. Oh no, for like, what it's worth, like for what it's worth, I would probably, I would probably take Trey. 17 and on 18 and on but like if my team if i if i'm a good playoff team who's needing someone who just can come off the bench and contribute like i'm gonna be more inclined to take him higher right this is all team by team context yeah um and then my final one is one that like i I straight up don't know what to do with is uh tyler bay from colorado so i (laughs) i don't know what to do with him either i really don't because i've never seen like this off i've never seen someone 
operate in the high post 95% of the time and then have that same coaching staff run a baseline out of bounds play for him to take a movement three. Like make that make sense to me because I can't comprehend it. 41.9% three-point shooter on one attempt per game. And they were like, most of those are swear to God that that out of bounds movement play. No, they probably are. Um, I just, we talked about volume and how important that is to me. And I'm just a little bit wary of projecting a guy forward who took one three a game because he is a good catch and shoot long two shooter. Like, you know what I, I, I don't know. Um, I know people like to cite that he has a great shooting projection. I get it. I just don't know if I see him being like anything but a big negative. Like I don't buy the shot. So if I'm not buying the shot, like I don't see a path to him being anything but a big negative on the offensive end. Like the defense is indisputable. Like that's undisputable. Like he's awesome on that end of the floor. <clears throat> but it just comes to a point like how great is the defense if he's just going to be a huge offensive liability? Like, look, I, I don't like Tyler Bay as a first round guy. I know people do, but like <laughs> this, it wouldn't shock me if we're looking back on this five years down the road and he's like a top 12 player in this class going forward, you know? I mean, I, I kind of would be shocked by that just because I don't, I don't understand what his ideal usage is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those things that like, I, is it just you get in where you fit in and like, to me, that just feels a little unimaginative for a player who, by numbers, should have shot more jumpers, but for, you know, watching the games, he just refuses to. Yeah. Like, to me, that's a strange situation. Like, he, his free throw attempt rate is 70%. So it's basically he, he either gets to the cup and gets fouled, or it's that free throw line jumper. Like, it's just, that's not a NBA player who I feel comfortable drafting if they don't shoot actual shots in a game so the path for me to be like okay this is a top 12 player going forward like is if somehow he is this like really reliable shooter who like somehow shoots off movement like me saying i wouldn't be shocked is because like i don't know what the hell this class is going to look like five years from now outside of like the top four like literally outside of the top four guys everyone anyone could be anywhere um the tyler bay thing why i am more hesitant with him is in a vein in a like it's the it's the paul reed argument for me personally like show me where this guy can play in an nba offense what is he gonna do for you and i don't i just can't get there and i don't think they are both of those dudes are good enough for me to just say and eh, they'll, they'll figure it out like I, I don't i don't see it if he's not gonna space the floor which i'm saying i don't think he does then what what are we doing here yeah, I mean, I guess mathematically one of these dudes has to shake out of the like six six to six eight power forwards who like theoretically shoot and do a lot of stuff on the court, but like to what end? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other downside is like they're all old. Like it'd be one th- if Tyler Bay was like nineteen, I would feel a little bit better. But like he has a negative assist to turnover ratio, or he has a point six oh assist to turn point six to one assist turnover ratio. And he's 22 years old in the Pac-12, where he's also like dramatically athletic in the Pac-12 is the worst power mm-hmm. five league. Is that fair to say? I would agree. So I guess we're asking for, to me, Tyler Bay has a lot of things that I would need to hear specific organizational plans to convert some of these like small scale indicators and you'd have to have the right team context. And now we're talking about a lot of uh, ifs, 
if-then statements, and for every if-then statement, you kind of got to drop a guy down a little bit, right? Yep. And I just think at some point, like, in the draft, and I see people say all the time, like, this isn't a bad draft. It's just really deep. Like, no, it's just there's a lot of dudes like this who have good skills in a vacuum, but, like, where does it all come together? And yeah, I would situation. I would push back on bad draft because I think that when people say bad draft, it's just how bad could I look in this draft? And like people could look really bad in this draft. If you're like, if you're a person who has, you know, Paul Reed, 47th, because you don't believe in any of it and he gets to the perfect spot and he's the fifth best player in this class. So that's uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that could totally be a lot of people. I think that this is a draft with a lot of really unique puzzle pieces and that every team's board more than any year is going to look drastically different. So different. Like if you had every team put their, um, take their names off of it and put, you know, give their top 60 or whatever, they would all look drastically different. And I think that's what bad draft means for a lot of people. Um, with these unique puzzle pieces, I think that it's important to try to think about what their team context is and how um, team scarcity and how much you know flexibility a team would have to have to fit some of these players into their rotations and into their long-term plans um, and how that affects their stock. If there's only two places, like we talk about this a lot with Tyrese Halbert, a player that I love, but like I'm willing to admit isn't for everybody, is that you need two athletic two-way wings, a shot blocker over top, and a point guard who can like really get into the middle of the paint or else he's not super valuable. And that's not that many people. So Tyrese Halliburton should be like the first or second best player, you know, for those two teams. And that's about it. So you're telling me the Knicks shouldn't take him in the top six. I am saying that the Knicks very much should not take him. Okay. I just wanted to, I just wanted to clear that up. I've been confused about that on the past couple of days, on the past couple of months, actually with Nick's Twitter. (laughs) Um, So that's all I got to if you, again, floor is still yours. If you have anything you want to throw at me, hit me, but I've, I emptied the tank. Okay. I actually do have one last one. Um, how high would you take Xavier Tillman? Are we looking for a number here? I mean, what's the, what's the point where you're like, that's a little too rich for my blood. You don't have to be a number, but like, give me a feeling at least like lottery. Like, am I really taking this guy in the lottery? I don't know if I could do that. I really don't. Like, I love I love David Tillman. Do not get me wrong. And I think it's certainly it. A lot depends on who's picking, what their rotation looks like, what their aspirations are for the next couple of years. I think he's a good bet to be a good NBA center. But like, I don't really know how much I buy the shooting. And like, if he doesn't shoot, then how good is he really going to be on offense? I love the short roll passing more than the next guy. But I I, I don't know. Um, he's a low twenties guy for me right now. I I think he's probably someone who's like going to be great value wherever he gets picked and like a smart organization will probably pick him. I wouldn't mind taking him in the late teens, but like I would say lottery is a little too high for me. Okay. And then, um, my, the very last thing I'll ask before we head out is, um, who is a player that you really wanted to stay in this draft and that didn't? Wanted to stay in this draft and didn't. Um, I'm gonna go. Hmm. I don't know if he. I'm gonna give two guys. I don't know. Did Franz Wagner ever ent- enter the draft? Uh, I I think that he withdrew pretty quickly. If he did, I think it might have been like exploring options and then went back. So I'm gonna say Franz. Um, watching Michigan. My dad went to Michigan, so I grew up a diehard Michigan fan and watched a ton of their games and watching. 
he's just a guy that like I kind of wish he would have stayed in because I think his like skill baseline for a six seven I think he is like wing the dribble pass shoot like I think it's really there obviously there's athletic like he needs to make certainly some athletic and strength gains but what better place to do that than an NBA strength and conditioning program so um he's someone that is one of my favorite returners next year and I think is someone that I can't wait to see how much he grows with added usage and added burst hopefully but he's someone that I would have liked to stay in and then a smart team take a flyer on his skill I have one more, but I want to know how you feel about that one. I mean, yeah, I the 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 foot speed scares me mm-hmm. um, a lot, and I just think he has to be an absolutely ludicrous shooter. Um, like a you know the Hausers are like that the Hauser level of shooter. Mm-hmm. Is that where you think he is? I'm not ready to say that Hauser okay. level yet, which is why ultimately, like, I don't really wish he stayed in the draft because i need to see him shoot more i think he netted i think he finished in like the low 30s this year but like i i think he's better than that hauser level i don't know but like i would have just liked to see where he would have went and what team would have been like okay he's worth it um the final guy i have is keontae johnson like in a class that doesn't really have a lot of like projectable options like i really love that guy like strong as a bull I buy, I, I buy the shooting to a solid extent and just a freak power athlete, like super explosive around the rim. Um, he was just a guy that I really liked the value and where he would have likely gone. Um, I understand why he returns to school, but I think he's a little bit less ex- like It's almost like how much better can you get kind of thing. And I know the Florida guys all made their pact after a pretty underwhelming season. But like, how much high? How much better can Keontae Johnson really get? Like, if he's gonna come here and double his three point rate, okay, fine, I'm here for that. But like, if you're just gonna turn in more of the same season, then why not go and just get drafted in the top forty? So Keontae is probably like the better answer for your question. I mean, Florida's gonna need people to shoot. They don't. They didn't recruit another guard, so it's gonna be Trey Mann, and then you know, Scotty's never gonna be somebody that carries a huge amount of. Um, a huge amount of usage. So maybe Keontae is the one who steps up his usage considerably. Um, mine is uh, Romeo Weems, uh, a person I would have. This is coming. A person I would have, I would probably draft like top 15. Like I would feel extremely comfortable with it because I think he makes winning plays. I think that the creation surprised me every single time I saw it. Um, he struggled with like being the man and the DePaul situation was weird. Um, but you know, there's something to be said for guys that are NBA wing size, um, have been impressive with their jumper when, you know, the, the, the mechanics are right. Have like, is a dribble pass shoot guy and can be a disruptive defender, like in a class where there's just not enough dudes who are six tool players. Like that's one of them. And I wanted him to come out so bad. And they, there's an extent deadline, still nothing. Romeo Weems should have been this 2020 draft. My mind can't be changed. So if we're talking about like a driving force behind me hacking into the transfer portal and like physically like moving one player from one school to another, like he's probably near the top of the list. Like just get away from DePaul. Like please, anywhere. I don't care where you go, just anywhere. And I know you can attest to that. DePaul is not particularly fun to watch. Um I, I just, it's just not something I enjoyed. Um, but 
to me, that's that's somebody that is going to rocket up draft boards next year. Um, talked about like next year has a lot of really you know interesting jumbo uh, initiators, and there's kind of this soft spot uh, because the returning class is kind of weird. Um, so I think that he's somebody who could like sneak himself into the back way, back end of the lottery really easily, even on consensus boards. I, I, I can get behind that. And then now you just jog my memory for one last guy. At this rate, we're never going to get out of here, but I promise I'm done after this one. I need your Terrence Shannon take. Uh, he might be the best prospect on Texas Tech next year. Um, I just think, can he shoot more, please? Like, Can we get him to shoot more? So if, if I recall correctly, I remember when before the horrible people took down D1 circuit, like he was a pretty impressive volume shooter in EYBL. I don't think I'm making that up, right? Uh, I can check AU stats, right? I, so while you're checking that, I feel like for some reason he was taking like three a game, which is certainly better than what he did this year. Um, if you were calling the Kentucky game, Kentucky literally gave him the Ben Simmons treatment. Like they backed off of him for like six feet backed off of him in the corner and he refused to take it and barreled into the lane and picked up a charge. So Taron Shannon is just one of those guys that like makes really, really, really impressive flash plays and like athletically makes some nice, interesting passes. But ultimately, like I think the shooting is the linking skill that brings it all together and makes him worthwhile as a player. Um, so that's certainly the thing to monitor. And if I'm not making that up, like the high school volume would be a huge feather in his cap. So it looks like he be- took between three and seven every one of the games that AAU Stats has for him, but AAU Stats is a little unreliable. Yeah. Um, and the Synergy doesn't have last year's uh, or the 2018 UYBL season. But, it, I mean, there's only one game where he does not take a three in here, and there's you know two games above six. Okay. So this is a pretty, I think that it's a case of like when things go wrong, some people shoot through it and some people climb up. Um, and it seems that the Texas tech uh, environment made him, you know, a little more hesitant to shoot, trying to only shoot great shots. Um, I'm a firm believer that you can only shoot your way out of shooting slumps. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he, if he like shoots, even if it's at a bad percentage, at least tells me that we're back to this. Cause I, you know, and watching Mac Irvin fire with him and um, him and Khalil, um, I was like, oh, okay, I like Shannon a lot. He shoots like we have a wing who shoots and we'll shoot them off the dribble. And to me, that's encouraging enough. You can build from there and going to Texas Tech with its reputation for, you know, guys who try hard as hell on defense. Um, I don't know how high to have him because, you know, which version of him works best, but I think he's probably the Texas Tech's best prospect next year. No, I don't disagree. And the shooting is ultimately like what makes him like without the shooting, I'm skeptical to peg him into this like wing role, because if you're going to spend your entire time on offense beyond the three point line and you're not going to shoot, then what are we doing here? Um, When we, I mean, when he played this year, he kind of looked like more of this undersized four, which I get and I'm interested in, but like for me to fully buy it, I want to see the volume go up. So I, so he can like really be the swing. If he's taking off the bounce threes, then like now we're really, really talking. Yeah. He took 35 threes for the whole season. Yeah. Not ideal. Not but ideal. He, but the encouraging sign is that, you know, he took 105 free throws and made them at an 83% average. So there's, you know, some shooting indicators there. 
um, when you combine the, the UIBL numbers, um, the reputation coming into Texas Tech and the Texas Tech free throw number. I just, if he can take three to four a game, because like, Lord knows you're wide open for three to Texas Tech. Like, mm-hmm. you, you have the opportunity to get him up, and people are going to sag off Micah, um, and they might sag off Namari just for, you know, effect. Like, Shannon could be the one to capitalize by getting, you know, um, the threes that other people may not take. Yeah. Um, appreciate uh, – if that's all you got, I really, really appreciate you coming on. Glad we could make this work. And the first appearance, but certainly not the last. Thank you so much for your time, my man. Thank you.